good to be back worshiping with my church family. Um, last weekend, I was away at the annual meeting down in lovely Kent, Washington, and then Corey and the kids and I went to Spokane last weekend for a family funeral, so we are back, and uh, we find ourselves this evening back in that series in 1 Corinthians we started in January uh, called Following Jesus in the Real World. That's what we do every series, I guess, but anyway, it seemed like a good title to me, and partly the reason for that title is because of the kind of church Corinth was. In the early 50s, like not the 1950s, but like 50s AD, um, Paul uh, brought the good news of Jesus to this Roman colony that was situated in Corinth, which is a southern part of Greece. Corinth was a seaport. It was a mosaic of ethnicities, religions, and socioeconomic classes. And it was there that Paul planted a church made up of former pagans and former Jews, a a church made up of women and men, some powerful and wealthy, and some from slave classes. It was a church that loved Jesus and yet still struggled against the lures and lusts of the world uh, in which it was situated. The church in Corinth was not one of those churches that you would use as a model of how to do church or this is how a church should look. Uh, instead, it was a church full of problems, and the book that we call 1 Corinthians was really a letter that Paul wrote to address some of those many problems. It's a letter that helped people live a life of following Jesus in their real world, a world full of temptation, of moral ambiguity, a world of sin and grace and beautiful uh, Beautiful scenery, beautiful relationships, and and horrible ugliness all at the same time, just like our world is a mixture of all of those things. On the one hand, then, we're looking back in time at this church planter and uh, this church and her pastor. We're observing them from a great distance. And on the other hand, I think if we look closely, we can see our own reflection in this text, our own issues in both Paul and our issues in the Corinthians. And because of this kind of kindred reflection, we can grow in Christ by paying attention well. Uh, I'm going to do it backwards. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read the scripture together. Lord, I thank you for um, the fact that you give us the word in the way you give it, that it is not a sanitized owner's manual like a how to work your new microwave or something. It is... Uh, an account of you interacting with people in their best days and people in their worst days and you showing yourself faithful throughout the whole thing. Thank you for this book we have before us in 1 Corinthians. Lord, on the one hand, we look at it and we might be appalled that people could act that way. And at the same time, if we're honest, We see those same potential elements in us, and some of us have acted just as bad, if not worse. And so, Lord, we thank you that you speak to us where we are, uh, not just where we ought to be. And thank you that your love does not change wherever we are on that spectrum. Help us to receive that bit of good news if we receive anything. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand as we read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Let people regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 
In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of people's hearts. And then each one's praise will come to him or her from God. Now, these things, brothers and sisters, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what was written, so that no one of you will become arrogant or puffed up in behalf of one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Let me just kind of catch you up if you're just joining us uh, today for the first time or, or you haven't been in a while. Uh, for the past couple chapters now, Paul has been addressing an issue within the Corinthian church that has threatened to really tear their fellowship apart. The issue is multifaceted and complicated, and that's why I preached sermons on it, so I'm just going to sum it up right now. Uh, these people were is- is dealing with pride. Some of the Corinthians were creating factions within their fellowship around different Christian leaders. And these factions were dividing the church and really distracting them from their larger mission. Paul has been challenging them over the last few chapters uh, on their divisiveness in a number of different ways, but beginning now in chapter 4, he's going to change tack uh, in his argument. And he draws on a term that was common in their cultural language at the time, and it's oikonomos, which means household servant or steward of a household. And these stewards of households of great estates were usually slaves, but they were given great authority uh, over to, to basically run and operate the whole household. They were in charge of, uh, of sometimes finances and money and the operations of great estates. Now, to illustrate Paul's point here as being a steward to a master, I'm going to need some volunteers. First of all, well, First of all, I need one stately-looking volunteer, someone to be the Lord, the Lord of an estate. Here's your throne. I've got a surprise for you if you come forward. Um, all right, Nathaniel. Yeah. Nathaniel, you get to wear a crown that Sophia helped me make today. So. Yeah. Lord Nathaniel, master of estates and many lands. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah, see I'm the narrator. It's third person. Okay, so now I need some stewards. The first one is named Paul. Who wants to be Paul the steward? Sounds like a good job for Eric Frazier. Come on out. I will anoint you with this stole so that you, you know, you know, you know. Actually, you should be doing this. Stewardize him. Yeah. Oh, these are going to tempt me the whole. Whose are these? These aren't mine, but Okay. I need an Apollos, an Apollos, another steward. Greg, you know, Paul, you look like you could handle some stuff, dude. Okay, okay so here, anoint Mr. Apollos there. And I'm going to need a Cephas, which I know sounds weird, but it means, you know, rock. 
Jim, you'd be a great Cephas coming up. You don't have to say anything. Don't worry. All right. You're standing too close to the master. Come over here. All right. So this this Lord has multiple lands, uh, multiple estates, and he's got stewards at these estates, and they they take care of different things. Let's say that that um, that Paul here over on our right, Mr. Eric, he is the steward of. Uh, 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 you know, the grand steward over all the logistics of the house. And we've got Apollos here. He's the master gardener. He goes around and makes sure that the seed that is planted um, grows up and becomes fruitful. You, uh, you're in charge of the hedges and the walls around the estate. You keep intruders out. And then let's say Cephas here is the buildings and grounds guy. You're in charge of the structures of things. You make things go. You can be the cook, too. You want to do that? Okay. Yeah, okay. That would be good. Yeah, you can be the cook. So... We've got, you know, the master and his stewards, and this master's got estates and lands all over the world, and there's this place in Corinth, you guys are Corinth, uh, a place in Corinth that he wants to set up shop now. So he's going to send his steward, Paul, out to go gather people up for this uh, workforce. So, Paul, you're going to go down and back and cast seed, just to get the, the, the scene there. And... You guys in Corinth, I mean, some of you are wealthy, some of you are poor, but all of you are, um, are, are pagan or Jewish, and you're hearing this good news about this Lord, this master, and it changes your life. It absolutely changes your perspective on the world. Some of you were lonely, and you found family. Some of you were surrounded by people because you're wealthy and you had this entourage, but you still felt alone. And now you've joined this community where uh, women are actually elevated in status and they can actually um, have roles of leadership and, and teach and things. So this is a new thing for you. And some of you who are slave class, when you come to worship the master's place, you can look the upperclassmen in the eye. You're on the same level uh, under the cross. It is ab- Children have an elevated view from the... Uh, uh, the, the pagan Roman view. So this, you guys are just, how, how would you express yourself? Let's hear it if you're overjoyed to be part of this estate. Yes, yes. Oh, it's just wonderful. Your lives are absolutely changed. Well, after a while, the master sends his steward, Paul, off to a different land to go do the same thing. Sorry, come back. Yeah, yeah. So just go in that corner. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so, so, so the guy, that he, he's been there 18 months stewarding this new community. You guys are so in love with all of this newness in Christ. And, and so he goes to start a new one. And then Apollos comes in. And Apollos, why don't you water up and down the aisle? So Apollos is watering. And this guy has a golden tongue. You thought Paul was impressive. Well, Apollos is just an eloquent speaker. And he gives meaty sermons, not just, you know, not just the gospel. Uh, he's talking about how to grow in Christ. And so some of you are really taken with this Apollos cat. And he's just helping everything grow. And then everybody knows Cephas because he visits all the estates from time to time, whether in person or in writing, and just makes sure that the structure is solid, right? And that everyone's eating well because Jim is the... Okay. All right. <clears throat> now, over time... Some of that newness, and if you've walked with Christ for a while, you know, if you remember a conversion experience or when God was really speaking to you, and sometimes there's, there gets to be dry spots in your life, and, and so people began to be influenced again, kind of by their old lifestyle. 
some of the cares of the world begin to creep back in. And uh, see, before you were, before Paul came around, you guys were in the cutthroat world of, of eat or be eaten, of um, uh, performance is what you're judged on. The opinions of people are what matter. And when this new message and this new family and this new inclusive thing happened to you, you were blown away. But now you're not so sure. And, well, you still got some friends who aren't part of this community, and they're kind of cool and influential. And people began to grumble. In those days, people valued public speakers for their eloquence and good looks. Paul, tradition, uh, tradition says, was neither of these. Some people, he was kind of frumpy and probably like, I'm going to be in a couple of years, and uh, had none of these great qualities of the sophists of the day. And so Paul responds brilliantly by reminding them that although he loves them, and although he's labored to share the gospel with them, he doesn't work for them. You see, who do these stewards work for? Point to who they work for. Yes, they work for this master. So even though these three give their blood, sweat, and tears to, to help you and to foster your community and to share the things of the master with you. They don't ultimately work for you. They work for the master. He says, let people regard us in this way as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Now that is a significant statement. We are servants of Christ, he's saying, not your servants. And the implication being, hey, if you've got a problem with Paul and you're judging him based on the world's criteria, you're judging Apollos or you're judging Jim, don't judge Jim, uh, Cephas, your judgment really isn't valid if you're judging from the world point of view. Paul and Apollos and Cephas will be judged by Jesus, so your criticism doesn't matter. Now, hear me on this. Let me just take a step away from this fun scene real quick. This doesn't mean that Christian leaders stand above the law or that they should not be held accountable. In fact, every one of us could think off the top of our heads probably five influential Christian leaders in the last hundred years that should have listened before they had big crashes and burns. We, we know the stories are all too frequent of people that refuse to submit uh, to authority. In the book of Acts, the church of the Bereans are, are praised for checking the teaching of Paul against the scriptures. They're like, you sound good, but wait a minute, we're going to check this against scripture. And that's what we should be doing. We should be, uh, through a critical eye, balancing everything our teachers say against scripture. But what Paul is saying is that the Corinthian church should not be judging based on worldly standards. Don't judge Christ or the servants of Christ by the ways of the world, because Jesus himself never looked like a successful leader through the lens of the world. The subtext here is that our hearts are so corrupt that we should be careful, not only of judging other people, but of judging ourselves. Paul says, I'm not conscious of anything against myself, but that doesn't matter either. Like, I think I'm fine, but my judgment of myself doesn't get me off the hook. Basically, he's saying, listen, there's only one judge, and his name is Jesus, and it won't matter what people think about you, and it won't even matter what you think about yourself. What matters is what Jesus thinks. Paul says, I don't care what you think, because praise will come from Jesus in the last day when we're judged by him. And then he brings it home by reminding them of where they come from. Basically, I mean, just to be blunt, this is what Paul is saying. Don't you remember where you came from? 
Is there any position that you have that wasn't given to you by God in the first place? Do any of us really have wealth that wasn't a gift from God? Do you really have a healthy body or sharp mind on your own? And then you judge people who don't have those things? Remember that all good things are gifts. So why do you boast as though the good things in your life didn't come from God? Okay. Stewards work for the Lord. The Lord hands out the rewards to everybody. All right, give our volunteers a hand, and I want my scarves back. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's not me. We'll put it by the Christ candle because he's the Lord. There we go. Paul's kind of been saying the same things in the end of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, and now chapter 4. So I just wanted to mix it up a little bit to get a visual of what Paul is trying to say. He, he's saying, you guys are judging me and Apollos and Cephas. First of all, we, the three of us, are in agreement, and you guys are trying to form these factions. The second thing, don't judge us by the world's standards. We're accountable to Christ. Uh, if you can come at us with some kind of biblical thing that we're doing wrong, like if we're not preaching scripture, then go, your criticism is warranted. But don't say, you know, not a good enough speaker or, or whatever, whatever these other things are because we're accountable to Christ. Okay, now how does that passage actually help you and I follow Jesus in the real world in Bellingham or Sumner or wherever it is that you are hailing from today? Well, first of all, let me just point out the obvious, that this passage, even in these seven verses in 1 Corinthians 4, are full of gospel Paul reminds us that this ragtag church in Corinth and the church in Bellingham and the church around the world only exist because of the grace of God in Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the gift of God for the world. That, that's awesome. He made the world. And when he saw you and I and our ancestors destroying ourselves in sin and death, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He reminded us of who we are who we're created to be, and then he died to take on our sin, the consequences of our sin, and then he rose and broke the back of death itself, and death cannot hold you now who have faith in Christ. Hmm. He's present with us now in his Holy Spirit. He is the one who adopts you and I into his family. And he is the one who transforms us more and more and more and more and more into his image. He's the one who frees us, has the power to free us from addiction. He's the one who softens our hearts. And if you haven't tasted this new life, it is available to you through faith in Christ. That is the kind of Savior he is. Second thing I think we learn for life in the real world here is that you never see Jesus calling people to salvation. Like, he doesn't walk around and say, who wants to be saved in the afterlife? When Jesus is going through the Gospels and we see these stories, he calls people to follow him, to become disciples of him. I mean, that, the, the two things go hand in hand. You can't just, like, say, well, I, uh, you know, I prayed the prayer of salvation, but I don't know Jesus or follow him. I mean, you never hear Jesus saying things like that. Come and follow me. That's the call. To trust Jesus is to follow him. So we're invited into his service. We now are stewards of the mysteries of God. Isn't that amazing? Like we thought, we saw the little thing going on here with the three stewards, but 
in Christ, you and I are now stewards of the mysteries of God. We are called to be faithful with that good news. Faithfulness will look like sharing the good news of Jesus with others in our words, in our sharing of our stories. And faithfulness will look like a commitment to quality work. No matter what your work is, whether you're retired and you do some kind of volunteering or grandparenting or whether you tend a garden in your yard, whether you are a new parent and you feel like you're not doing anything but surviving, that's good work. Uh, you're a contractor, whatever it is that you do, your students, good work is part of being faithful. Contributing to the created world through service and love, through growing incompetency in our vocation. Vocation's important. And I love how many of you, as I, as I learn your stories and what it is that you do, your vocation, I love how you get better at it. That's awesome to me. And it's about growing in character, isn't it? I mean, following Jesus will just continue to sharpen us. We are not called, th- this is also gospel right here, we are not called by Jesus to produce or perform. We are called to be faithful. And that is a huge difference. Paul told the Corinthians not to judge him based on worldly standards. He was not called to be a worldly leader. He was called to be faithful to the one who gave him stewardship of the mystery. Meaning that God became king, was crucified, risen in Jesus, and invites all people, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, everybody, into his fellowship. That's the mystery of God. And there's a difference between faithfulness and worldly success. Worldly success counts numbers and salaries and looks at externals and popularity. Faithfulness is not an abstract reality. You can only be faithful to a person. I I read an interesting uh, thing as I was studying this passage. And it said that in um, in the Jewish mindset and language and Arabic uh, contemporary mindset and language, there is no word for our word loyalty. Isn't that interesting? Loyalty is a Roman and Greco-Roman construction. You can be loyal to an ideal. You can be loyal to a personal code. But the Hebrew way of thinking of this is faithfulness. You can't be faithful to an ideal or to a personal code. You can only be faithful to a person. And that's what we're called to be. We're called to be faithful to Jesus. Not just loyal to an ideal or dutiful in doing a bunch of things. We're called to be faithful to the Lord. I think that is so freeing. If you don't, let me unpack that a little bit. It means that you are called to faithfulness in Jesus. You are his servant, which means that you are not then a slave of the opinions of, fill in the blank, your parents. I know if there were teenagers in here, that would be a big, a big deal. But some of us have never moved out of the umbrella of our parents. We still, whether you think about it or not, sometimes are striving to please people that we really look up to. Um, maybe people we never had a good relationship with, we don't even talk to anymore, but we're still striving, right? Because you are called to be faithful as a servant, a steward of Christ, you are not, you're free now. You don't 
belong. The opinions of your parents no longer matter in in those terms of of your self-worth. You are not a slave to the lusts and desires of your body. You might feel like you are. And some of us might have addictions, and we're honest about those things. But the reality in Christ is that you don't have to be, that there is freedom available. And that is not true outside of Christ. You are not a slave to the expectations of other people. You are not a slave to your own ego or self-esteem. Your personal worth is not tied up in the opinions of others. You're free to be faithful in Christ. Adoption into the family of God through faith in Jesus and freedom from slavery to the opinions of others. That sounds awesome. And I derive all of this from those seven verses in 1 Corinthians 4. And I imagine that Paul said much of the same things over and over again to that church in Corinth. What happened then? Why did this church get so misled? Why did they forget the graciousness of Christ and begin to form factions and divisions in their fellowship? Well, Paul doesn't really beat around the bush, typical Paul. In verses 6 and 7, he lays it out and says, you've become arrogant. Literally, the word is puffed up. They had an overinflated view of themselves. The Corinthians had forgotten where they'd come from. They went from uh, blown away by grace to entitled. They started as orphans and ended up like acting like spoiled children. Now, how does this happen, you think? pretty easy. When you stop, and when I stop, reflecting on our lives, and we cease giving thanks, it's easy to become arrogant. It's easy to become feeling entitled and like we earned it all. There's nothing new. Uh, 400 years before Paul, Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Even before smartphones and the internet, people were busy. If you're not intentional, your time will go somewhere. Like, there are 24 hours in a day, just like there were when Socrates was <laughs> I mean, there, it's going to go by. And if we, we're not intentional about it, it's just going to go by, and you'll be like, what happened? Where did it go? What did I do today? What, why did I do what I did today? If you're like me, you sometimes say, I said this according to it. How did we get so busy? As if it just happened to me. Where did the time go? Common journal entry, as I look back in my past entries every few months, I feel like a human doing, not a human being. You feel that sometimes? Socrates was on to something here. He knew that if you don't invest a small amount of time to regularly examine your life, Your life will cease to be your own. You'll start to feel out of control. And that's probably what's happening with the Corinthians because when you start to feel out of control, you want to gain control. And one of the ways we do that as human beings is we start to figure out, hey, who's like me? Let's form a gang of people like us to protect ourselves from people like them. People that think like me and and like the same things that I like. When you don't know where you're going or why you're here, you struggle with insecurity. Am I right? 
I do, people's opinions not only begin to matter a little bit more, but they have a way of absolutely controlling your life. And that's where a judgmental attitude can rise up inside of us. Because if we can point out the weaknesses in other people, we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. And the best is when you start to talk to someone else about someone else's weaknesses, and it's two that feel really good about themselves. Oh, safety in numbers. You know, so what do we do? I mean, this is old hat, right? Like, probably every sermon can point to something like this. And we can point to, oh, well, look at... um, you know, Jesus' humility, or Moses, it says in the Bible, he's the most humble man in the world. So we could look to these examples, uh, we could look to uh, more contemporary examples. Oh, Mother Teresa was so humble. Henry Nouwen, we all love reading Henry Nouwen, he's he, su- such a humble man. So we, we look at these, these models, whether they're biblical or whether they're contemporaries. But come on, l- let's face it, like, okay, I, I want to really try and be like Jesus, and I'm going to try and be that humble. And what happens? I fake it for a while because I'm not really like that. And then I get frustrated and I just fall back in my old ways. Now, it's not that dismal. Thankfully, there are many ways to develop an examined life. Maybe the most famous was developed by a Spaniard, uh, the founder of the Jesuit order, St. Ignatius of Loyola. In the mid-16th century, Ignatius wrote his famous work, The Spiritual Exercises. And part of the spiritual exercises is called The Prayer of Examine. Now, for those of you who are interested, I have some uh, booklets like these. And they'll be at the table in there. Um, It's like 24 pages, and it walks you through The Prayer of Examine my shipment from Amazon. Amazon, This is the first time they've really let me down, but uh, I don't think they're going to, the bulk of them aren't going to come till midweek, so I'll have them for you next Sunday. But there's a bunch here as well. Take them if you think you'll use them. Anyway, um, those are going into more detail with the prayer of examine. I'm just going to hit the highlights for us now. And I bet that all of us could benefit from a more reflective life. Whether or not you're ready for this right now, I can't know. You know, that's kind of like any Sunday. Heck, sometimes I'm not ready for the things I'm preaching, but the text says it, so I preach it, right? It's one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor. But I do know this, that by putting tools in your hands and getting a resource for you, there'll be a time, and you'll know when it's time, and you'll say, you know what? I am ready for that. What was that thing Chris was talking about? And you'll have a resource, or you can talk to me. Um, I would love to talk to you more about this, but here we go. First, there's five sections of your note taker. There's five little things to the prayer of examine. This whole exercise should only take you about 15 minutes. So don't overthink it, okay? First, you want to find a quiet place. I hear you snickering right now, um, parents of young children. Seriously, if you can, (laughs) find a quiet place, preferably by yourself. And what you do in that first part is simply remind yourself that the Holy Spirit is with you, and you're with the Holy Spirit And it's been that way all day, every day. You are simply remembering that reality. Find yourself in the presence of God because that's where you reside all the time. Second, simply consider the past 24 hours. This is not a minute-by-minute survey. Consider the past 24 hours. What is there to be thankful for? What gifts did you receive from God? Is there a moment or an event that stands out? 
take that time to simply give thanks, to simply be thankful. Uh, I'll give you an insight into what my journal looks like sometimes. It's the simplest things. It's, uh, I, I do this in the morning, so I recollect the day before, okay? Um, and usually I work backwards. So when I wake up in the morning at this time of year, the birds are magnificent in the backyard, and I love their little songs. Uh, I've got a special heart for St. Francis, so I imagine the birds are actually singing praises to God, right? So to me, I just am thankful for that, that somebody is preceding me in worship. Uh, and I think back about, well, usually it's bedtime, and the adorably um, firm hugs of Samara right now, and how she loves the story of David and Goliath every night. Goliath, he go thud, thud, thud. He say, your God can't save you. I ripped your head off and put you on toast. That's her favorite line. I hope she knows the Lord someday. But anyway, so, <laughs> so these, these are the types of things that fill much of the pages of my Thanksgiving. It's not like, woo super spiritual, okay? Um, take a few moments and, and give thanks. Third, take a few moments and now survey the past 24 hours. Again, this whole thing, all five steps, should only take about 15 minutes. So don't go too long. You don't need to go hour by hour. And one writer was helpful to me in that she described this third step as you and Jesus, imagine you and Jesus sitting down on your couch, if you have a couch, and you put a DVD of your past 24 hours into the DVD player and you watch it together. Now, I was thinking about how awkward that is. Um, This is not like the first time you saw a movie with a swear word with your parents. It's not like that kind of awkward. Don't imagine Jesus going like, you said that, or, you know, but it's like, the way I think of it, just from a sports perspective, is like, athletes that want to get better, they watch film of what they did, you know, so a football team, they play on Sunday, on Monday, they're in the film room, and they're studying, what did I do well, what do I need to improve upon, that kind of thing, so this is not an exercise of self-condemnation, this is an exercise of sitting with the, the being who breathed you into existence, then saw you struggling and died for you, loves you that much. Like, he's not going to then, you know what, I died on the cross for you, but you were mean to your wife, so it, we're done. You know, this is the, the absolutely the most gracious and loving person you could imagine. Wants to help you become all of who you are in himself. So you're sitting there watching for 24 hours. What feelings come to mind? What things make you just like, you see that one, Jesus? Where have you grown? Celebrate those things. What things might make you cringe? Like, oh, you were watching. When I, um, can we work on that together, Lord? You know, you know what I'm saying? So this is a, it's a grace-filled exercise. But simply, how, how often do you do this? The unexamined life is not worth living. You ever, you know, I, I struggle with this all the time. How did I get where I am? What am I doing? So a little bit of this examine just helps put it all in perspective. The fourth step is simply confessing those areas of sin that came up in the examine. Thank the Holy Spirit for revealing them to you. Thank Jesus for forgiving you. Express your sorrow, your disappointment, your feelings of powerlessness. You know, Jesus, I know when I sat on the couch with you yesterday, I did that. And the day before, I did that. Express your feelings of I don't really feel anything. 
I feel bad about that, that I'm not more sorry than I am. Why am I so cold? That's a frequent one for me sometimes. This is an opportunity. You're sitting with the Lord um, to confess, to be made new. And then the fifth step, um, the fifth step is called hopeful resolution. Is there something that God is inviting you to pay attention to? Is there something the Spirit might be prompting you to give up? Is there an area of powerlessness that seems to have mastery over you? Like just something that you keep doing or thinking. And this is the time to pray for help one day at a time. Lord, just one day at a time, help me, help me. You know, in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says he doesn't judge himself. He was definitely a man, though, who examined himself. Paul was self-aware. He was the first to tell people, hey, I'm the least of all the apostles. I persecuted the church. I was self-righteous. And that examined life, that self-awareness is what convinced Paul of the magnificent grace of Christ, Paul was so big on grace because he was so aware of his own sin. And and these Corinthians who were fighting with each other and being judgmental had forgotten who they really were. And I guarantee if we, from time to time, even practice this exam and get real with who we are and the grace of God, uh, the forgiveness that we've received, it becomes really difficult then to judge other people. It's sobering. So I offer the prayer of examine to you not as a magic technique or as one more thing to make you feel extra super special holy. Quite the opposite. I offer it as a practice to help you live the examined life before Jesus that you may know yourself as you really are, as ugly as you really might be on the inside or think that you are, and to know the power and the grace of Jesus because you will not be able to remain the same. Let's pray. Thank you, thank you, Lord, um, for your servant Paul, who I'm sure we're just seeing some of the highlights of his life. Uh, I know uh, he struggled a lot too, but thank you for these moments of clarity that help us have moments of clarity. Lord, I pray for those who sense a, uh, a need in their lives for examine, for living in an examined life. And I pray for grace, Lord, that this wouldn't be a sermon that just simply frustrates us or makes us feel like we're not doing enough yet again. I pray that we'd be overwhelmed with your good news, with your grace, that you are the type of Lord um, who actually wants to look with us honestly at our lives that you already know our lives anyway. You've already forgiven and paid for those things on the cross. And you, you want, to, want us to walk in newness of life. So Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters and myself, all of us who want to live into full life. Help us, Lord. Meet with us in these times of examine and these moments of vulnerability.